0: With your EWTN Newslink, I'm Brian Patrick. U.S. Catholic bishops vote to authorize development of a comprehensive vision for ministry to Hispanics who account for more than a third of all U.S. Catholics. One suggestion is the use of tax credits and vouchers to offset costs of Catholic school tuition for Hispanic families. The Supreme Court's conservative majority seems prepared to allow the Trump administration to end a program that protects some immigrants from deportation. There appears to be no support among five conservatives to keep protection in place for immigrants who came to the U.S. as children. China's foreign ministry again warns the U.S. not to interfere with Hong Kong's affairs. A ministry spokesman says members of the U.S. Senate should stop trying to promote bills on human rights or democracy in Hong Kong. For more news from a Catholic perspective, visit EWTNnews.com. Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders starts now.
1: What's stopping you You, you. from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN
0: I don't understand why I have to earn salvation.
1: 1-833-288-3986
0: Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest?
1: What's stopping you? You, 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 you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. And
0: we welcome you to the Wednesday edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN. This is the program you've been hearing about. This is a program on a Catholic network for non-Catholics. Now, how does that work? Well, here's the way it works. You've got a question about the Catholic faith. You're not quite sure how to get that question answered, but yet here you are listening to a Catholic radio show. So we are here for you. Here's the phone number eight five excuse me, eight three three. 288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening outside of North America, please dial the U.S. country code and then 205-271-2985. You can also uh, text the letters EWTN to five five zero zero zero. Wait for our response and then text us your first name and your brief message. Uh, Message and data rates may apply. And of course you can email us anytime that you wish at uh, ctc at ewtn.com. ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer. We also have Ryan Penny at the phones. He'll be the first voice that you hear, so to speak. We also have Jeff Burson on social media. If you want to pose a question via YouTube or Facebook, where we are streaming right now, he will uh, pass those on to us here in the studio. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? I'm great. What what kind of tea are you drinking today? Oh, just green tea. Green tea. Mm-hmm. Very good.
2: Green tea is, in the, in the world of teas, it's the highest in the antioxidant. Department. as long as you're dealing with actual tea plant. I mean, you can do higher if you go into hibiscus, but I uh-huh. don't
0: much care for hibiscus, so I drink green tea. This is good to know. Yep. All right, just in case there's a quiz later on. We'll, right. we'll, we'll all be and, up and on that. And matcha green tea, which I'm not drinking,
2: is like the that's the creme de la creme of the green tea world. The bee's knees. Mm-hmm, the bee's knees,
0: right. Very good. Which I do like, by the uh, way. Okay. Phone number again, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- Two eight eight three nine eight six. 3986 if you have a question for Dr. David Anders. I'm going to lead off here with an email from Terry. This is quite impressive, actually. He says, I am not a Catholic, but I have just finished reading the Catholic Catechism. Okay? As I progressed, I found that understanding and alignment of beliefs became paramount. Please recommend about three of your best books to read on the church and theology to help me understand the faith better. Thanks, Terry.
2: Okay, for someone who's who has read the Catechism of the Catholic Church and wants more information <laughs> to understand the Catholic Church and theology, so you you really would would benefit from digging into uh, the the doctors of the Church. The, I mean, these are the premier theologians of the tradition. The most eminent is Thomas Aquinas. So, the Summa Theologica of St. Thomas. I mean, if you've read the whole catechism, you you sound like the kind of guy who would be up for St. Thomas. Yeah. The, the, the Summa is a difficult book to get your head wrapped around because, number one, it's just incredibly long. And, number two, it, it presupposes a, a philosophical background and a philosophical vocabulary that's different from what's often used today. So, you need to probably get some helps. So you need to read some books about the Summa as you're reading it but you need to dive in i mean that's that's going to give you the, the the real stuff right yeah um i would read cardinal newman saint john henry cardinal newman's book uh, the essay on the development of christian doctrine okay that's a magnificent book to get a kind of an overview of the way uh, the church's doctrinal tradition developed over time and how to understand the fact of its development it's also a seminal work in in modern catholic theology um the uh, the book by Henri de Lubac, Cardinal Henri de Lubac, called Christ and the Common Destiny of Man, uh, is a, a modern study of the patristic theology of the Church and of redemption that was very influential uh, on a number of important Catholic thinkers of the modern era, including Pope Benedict. He cites that as one of the key books in his own theological formation. I find it very helpful the the documents of the Second Vatican Council will it also help to orient you. In particular, the Dogmatic Constitution on the Church, Lumen Gentium. So uh, you also you look. I can I can never recommend Saint Augustine too highly. Pick up anything by Saint Augustine and start reading. Um, Augustine, Thomas, Newman, Lubach's book on on Patristic Ecclesiology. Mm-hmm be a good place to get started.
0: Excellent. Uh, Terry, thank you so much for your email. Hope that's helpful for you. Here's one from Rita now. I do not feel the everyday presence of Jesus in my daily life except in the Eucharist. Some people say they feel Jesus sitting right beside them or driving in the car with them. I always feel the love of God the Father with me, but not so Jesus. Can you help me?
2: Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So I'm I'm concerned that perhaps you have a criterion for authentic spirituality that is not in fact proposed by the church or sacred scripture. In other words, we're never told in the Bible or the tradition that to, to gauge the quality of our spiritual life by the extent to which we can sensibly feel Christ with us. When we are called to live in communion with Christ, but principally in these ways. Number one, we're to obey his teaching. We're to, two, we're to follow his example. Um, we are to recapitulate his divine personality and the stages of his life within our own self-understanding. So we identify ourselves with his desolation, sorrows, his sufferings, his pa- passion and death and his resurrection. And with his victory over the powers of evil, we also identify with those and recognize that he's given us the victory over the sins and and uh, and, and desolations of our own life. So we recapitulate him. Uh, we we, uh, uh, we, enter, we experience Christ through the church, that is his body, the mystical body of Christ, mm-hmm. uh, through the sacraments that are their, their doctrine ritualized. That's what the sacraments are. They're the truths of the Christian faith expressed in nonverbal but ritual ways that we understand also have a promise of divine assistance that God will in fact cause to happen to us in the sacraments those things that are demonstrate demonstrated to us by the ritual actions. And we cling to the truth of the sacraments by faith alone. In particular, the Eucharist, St. Thomas's wonderful hymn, Adoro, um, Adorote Devote, he says, um, You know, seeing, touching, tasting are indeed deceived. Mm-hmm. What says trusty hearing, that must be believed, right? Our access to the truth of the sacraments is through the hearing of faith and not through sensible
0: feeling okay and we thank you so much for that if you would like to send us an email the address ctc at ewtn.com however this is primarily a call-in show if you have a question for dr david anders we're ready for you at 833-288-EWTN
3: If you're currently an EWTN Media Missionary or just interested in becoming one, we've got some great news. EWTN Media Missionaries has a new and improved website. EWTNMissionaries.com, designed with you in mind. Our new site is loaded with great features and it's easy to navigate. There are so many
1: different ways that you can help EWTN. Join us in sharing the eternal word with the world. Visit EWTNMissionaries.com today. Bishop Robert Barron.
0: For the first thousand years, there were married priests within the church. There still are married priests under certain circumstances, you know, so it's not absolutely necessary. However, I'm a supporter of it and I wouldn't want us to move in the direction of kind of a, Hey, you know, optional, some do it, some don't. I get it. And I go back to Paul and it's Paul's words that are actually in the ordination ritual, you know, about an undivided life, undivided life, a total gift. I have nothing but the greatest respect for married people. In fact, When I hear the term heroic sanctity, when they talk about saints, I think of parents right away, you know, who give themselves to their kids. But there's something, I think, pure and simple and undivided about the life of celibacy. It's a radical conformity unto the celibate Christ. Why am I celibate? My ultimate answer, because Jesus was. And I'm conformed to him.
1: The people you know and trust
0: are on EWTN. One of the great weekend shows here on EWTN Radio is Dr. Doctor. What is it? Well, we've uh, lined up three doctors uh, in the Midwest who bring you discussions on current medical topics with a focus on the dignity of the human person, body, and soul. This great show, Dr. Doctor, is actually the official radio show of the Catholic Medical Association. You may want to check it out Saturday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern, right here on EWTN Radio. Before we go to the phones at uh, 833-288-EWTN, one more quick email here from Dennis. Five quick words here, David. Is God a jealous God? Yes and no. Oh, okay.
2: Yes and no. Scripture clearly predicates jealousy of god find that language used i'm a jealous god says all the time in the bible sure meaning he won't tolerate uh, idolatry that's what that's what the jealousy of god in scripture means right that we are to love god above all things and to have no gods before god we're not to worship anything other than god and and if we do it'll be to our own ruin right and that's the way the language of jealousy is used of god in sacred scripture if, however, you want to know, does God experience the emotion, the passion of jealousy, the kind of gut-wrenching, heart-throbbing, head-pounding, blood-pumping, blood-lust that we experience when we see someone that has something that we want and we're envious and we want to tear them down and go after them and grab what they've got, in that kind of grasping human sense, no, God's not a man. He doesn't have blood that pumps. He doesn't have neurology. Uh, and there's nothing that God needs, right? So there's no lack in God that would be satisfied by some possession that someone else has, right? Um, God, God is, uh, is in, is infinite goodness, and He loves His own infinite goodness infinitely, and is lacking in nothing. And God's act of creation is sheer benevolence on His part to share the infinite goodness that is Himself with rational creatures. And the commands of God, right are not they don't benefit god in any way they benefit us they properly orient us towards our true and final end and and so he commands us well don't go after other things because they're not going to make you happy they're not going to fulfill your transcendent longing the way the infinite god will
0: okay and there we are. And we thank you so much for that. Again, if you would like to send us an email for a future show, I think we have a mailbag program coming up here in the next couple of days. The address, ctc at com. ctc at com. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin with Janet in Montgomery County, Maryland, listing on Guadalupe Radio. Hey, Janet, what's on your mind today? Okay, I
4: spoke to your... um the person that uh, screens the call,
0: uh-huh.
4: and um, I'm not trying to become Catholic, and I have nothing against Catholics at all or any other person from any other religion. I just want to make that clear. Okay. But the, the thing is, is that the people who have been the worst to me made me sorry I was born, made me wish I had been aborted, made me wish that if they had murdered me, I would have said, that's okay. It's better than what they actually did to me. Or religious Catholics, who and one just died not all that long ago, and he had this wonderful write up about him, and he's you know like he's almost sanctified, and this other one is also she's she's alive, uh, and she's a, a practicing Catholic, and what I don't get is I'm not religious, but I wouldn't do what they did. I would kill myself first.
2: Okay, so how can I help you, Janet?
4: I don't know, um, but uh, I spoke to the guy and he said he would like to take your call. So I guess how do you square being Catholic with people who just don't, who are religious Catholic, who just behave worse than regular people?
2: Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. Probably they're going to hell. That's the first thing I'd have to say, because uh, the Catholic Church doesn't teach that being Catholic makes you good. doesn't say that. Being Catholic can make you a lot worse. And the Bible says that. St. Peter says that. In Second Peter chapter 2, he talks about people who have entered into the way of righteousness, like they take up the Catholic faith, they take on the obligations of Christian life, they, they want to pursue holiness in Christ, but then their their Catholic faith becomes for them an occasion of manipulation or self-aggrandizement or pride or what have you, and they twist their religion to their own hurt and to the hurt of other people. And St. Peter says, better for these people never to have become Catholic. Better for them never to become Catholic. Because instead of becoming an occasion of holiness, it became an occasion of greater and greater sin and condemnation. And, and you know, Scripture says their condemnation is justly deserved, right? And, and so it's not going to go well for them. And it isn't going well for them now. And the fact that they may be held in high esteem by a people in the world that's of no account because God doesn't judge outward appearances God mm. judges the heart and in fact their their the incongruity in their life becomes for other people like you an occasion of scandal scandal like leading other people to sin in various ways or to despair perhaps Christ said of such people that it would be better for them to be drowned in the sea with a millstone around their be- uh, around their necks than to cause one other person to to stumble so if if there's someone who's like genuinely evil, and they're doing evil to other people, and they're cu- papering it over with a religious veneer, then uh, they're going to get their comeuppance on the last judgment, and mm-hmm. God's going to judge them extremely harshly. That's what the Scripture says. In fact, when I read the words of Christ, it seems to me at times that Jesus criticized almost nothing except religious hypocrisy. Okay. That's a little bit of an exaggeration, but I mean, like that. So much of Jesus's ministry is about this very problem, and and it's something that that religious people have to be alert have to be alert to at all times. It is a it's a species of the sin of superstition. Superstition, the Catechism defines as irrational religion. When I when I am seeking transcendent or infinite or, or, or eternal or divine goods, but I'm doing so. In an irrational way, a way that doesn't actually accord with my own good or the good of my neighbor, that's the sin of superstition and it's it's pervasive i mean it's this is part of the human experience, and it's kind of built into our into our cognitive faculties right we we We, we, we tend to overlook our own faults all the time, all the time mm-hmm. uh, or we're neurotically obsessed with them. And, uh, and we're always running around picking out other people and taking splinters out of their eyes rather than the logs out of our own eyes. And, uh, and so holiness is a rarity. Right? Now, does that mean, what, so what do we do with that information? Should I therefore avoid the Catholic faith because it can become an occasion to me of greater condemnation? No, because here's the thing. This is going to be the case with whatever philosophical position you take on life. So Catholics can twist their religion into a wicked ideology. Uh, so can secularists. So can humanists. So can atheists. So so can agnostics. You can you can take any frame of reference that you bring to reality and make what is otherwise good into in it into something that is a vehicle for evil when you become so attached to your own view of the world, and your self-importance that you derive from that view, when that becomes for you the ultimate end, the ultimate good, it's really not the good of others or God that you're seeking. It's your own good that you're seeking. And that danger doesn't go away if you leave the Catholic Church. Um, So instead, I need to be alert to that as a danger that's endemic to the human condition, and I need to be rigorously self-critical, have be be intensely focused on self-knowledge I mean, this is one of the spiritual disciplines of the christian life and seek above all things humility 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 the foundation of the christian life must always be humility which is open to correction open to rebuke open to being taught and and failure to do that will will be my ruin now So if I'm selecting a philosophical worldview, a a place to stand in the world to do good, am I better off standing in a religion that teaches me this explicitly about myself? Which Catholicism does. The Catholic faith tells me, watch out, boy, you're at risk. You had better be attuned to how subtle the danger of sin is in your life. You have to be rigorously self-critical and humble at all times and always seek the good of neighbor, not the adulation of the crowd and that doesn't mean i'll succeed but at least i've been warned mm. or do i go in for some simplistic caricature of religious life some secular ideology some stance where you know where i'm not so attuned
0: to the dangers and the reality of sin uh the uh, phrase comes to mind this person gives x a bad name as in this person gives politicians a bad name this person gives um teachers A bad name this person gives catholics a bad name sure they do because as you as you have said those are outliers so thank you so much for your call janet that opens up a line for you now at 833-288-EWTN that's 833-288-3986 it's called a communion on this wednesday afternoon here on EWTN radio let's go to frank now in buffalo new york listening on sirius xm 130 a first uh frank what's on your mind today
4: well, I need help with this concept—the uh, primacy of the conscience—and I'll put it in t- in context with uh, homosexuality, um, where people will say things like, "I was born this way," um, "I feel happy this way with my partner," um, "I've thought about it a lot. This is how who I am." Um, it's like, and it seems to me that uh, no matter how well-formed your conscience is, how are you supposed
2: to be so self-aware that you can think these things through and come up with the correct answer on such important issues? And, Okay. Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, so you can't. You can't. If you could, then Christ would have just said, you know, in seeking to do good in the world, consult your own interiority, period. And whatever you find will be right. But he didn't say that. No. He never said that at all. Christ actually gave us a very, a very objective authority in, in the Christian life. He gave us his own example, his own teaching. Uh, And the church that he founded, uh, to whom he gave the power of binding and loosing and a promise of divine assistance to the end of the world. Right. So when we want to know the truth about the moral life, we will consult conscience and the natural law, but we will also consult sacred scripture, uh, sacred tradition, and the objective teaching of the church on moral matters. And that's the proper way to form our consciences. So it's not just a subjective crapshoot in terms of figuring out what pleases me. Mm-hmm. Um, and you are correct that that poorly formed conscience, and and one way to poorly form your conscience is to engage in a kind of post hoc rationalization of your own prejudice, which in fact is what most people do. Like we we decide in advance, maybe even unconsciously, what outcome we would like, and then we go to consult the authorities. Uh, of our experience in order to justify those conclusions, and that's just not my characterization. This has actually been demonstrated by social science research. There's a great little book by uh, Jonathan Haidt. He's not a Catholic, right? But he's a he's a he's a uh, social psychologist. Wrote a book uh, a couple of years ago called The Righteous Mind, that demonstrates in laboratory conditions that this is the way most people do moral reasoning. Like they 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 have some passion, some inclination that they would like to follow, and then they do their moral philosophy in retrospect to justify the thing they've already decided implicitly that they want to do. Well, obviously, that's not going to give you a pass, right? That's not, that's not making a good faith effort to find out what the right thing to do is. Uh, it's just a way of trying to palliate my own, um, my own cognitive dissonance <laughs> when I live in a way that contradicts the good of nature, that's what most people do, and it's not going to give you a pass. And, of course, it can justify the most horrific evils. All of the ideological tyrants of the 20th century had very good reasons why they needed to slaughter 20 million people. Yeah. And they may have been very well convinced in their own minds. That's why pure subjectivity is not an adequate guide to the moral life, because conscience untutored can lead a man to do the most atrocious things.
0: Appreciate your call, Frank. It is called a communion here on EWTN. There is a line available for you right now: eight three three two eight eight EWTN. That's eight three three. Two eight eight three nine eight six for Called to Communion. We have a question now from Billy, one of our Lutheran listeners, uh, checking us out today on Facebook. And we'll probably carry this over the break if there's not enough time to finish answering it. Billy says, The question of Sola Scriptura has been brought up on this show, and it has been incorrectly defined as the sole source of authority for Christian faith and practice when the actual definition is that the Bible contains everything that one needs to know in order to obtain salvation and to live a Christian life. I believe this as a Lutheran, and I feel the Catholic Church changes the meaning in order to push their own traditions, which clearly aren't biblical. What say you? Yeah,
2: so you're, you're, you're referring to a distinction within Protestantism between those who hold for the material sufficiency of the Bible versus those that hold to the formal sufficiency of the Bible. The position, and there's the different views of sola scriptura, right, within Protestantism. Some people take the view that the Bible is materially sufficient, but not formally sufficient. That would mean that it contains all the matter that we need to know in order to attain eternal life, but we may actually have to... Receive it formally, the form of its presentation needs to be conditioned by church teaching church tradition mm-hmm. and and that's that 's not necessarily the Lutheran position, but it tends more i mean lutherans more than Calvinists will give the nod to sacred tradition except when it 's inconvenient to do so, like with <laughs> okay. Sola scriptura that 's clearly not traditional um, and they go well, on this one we 're just going di- to we 're going to divert away from tradition, but on these other things we 'll <laughs> go with tradition um, the Calvinist position tends to be more for the formal. Sufficiency of the Bible, which is not only that it contains the matter that we need to know, but that it expresses it uh, with a certain perspicacity. It's called the doctrine of scriptures perspicuity. Right? It's clear enough in its expression that you that an individual could come to the text of the Bible and discern the bare essentials that are necessary for his salvation. Right? And then there are shades of nuance and difference between both of those. From a Catholic's perspective, my response to both of those positions is neither one of them is biblical.
0: Uh They're both self-refuting. Very good. Billy, thank you so much for your question. Glad that you're watching us today on Facebook. Hey, there's a line open for you right now if you have a question for Dr. David Anders and that number 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986.
3: Come listen to a moving first-hand account of St. Teresa of Calcutta and her work, Mother Teresa's Lessons of Love and Secrets of Sanctity Through the Eyes of Susan Conroy. This talk will be at the Memorial Library in Uvalde on Saturday, November 16th from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Doors open at 9 a.m. with a coffee bar, and there will be a free light lunch. This event is free, but there will be a love offering for Susan. For more information, call Kathy at 830-279-6736.
1: Praise be Jesus Christ, now and forever. I'm Bishop John W. Yonta, retired Bishop of Amarillo, Texas. And I would like to encourage all of you to be a good tithers. That's the stewardship of tithing. The first use of your money should be, thank you, Lord. What have we received that we haven't received from the Lord? Let your Sunday offering be representative of your beautiful Catholic faith. Be generous.
0: This is a Messy Family Minute with Mike and Alicia Hernan. Sometimes it can seem that our family life is humdrum, monotonous, and insignificant. But Christ began his public ministry at the wedding at Cana. When we read this account in the Gospel, we're reminded that our marriage, our ordinary family life, is important to God.
1: Our Lord and Our Lady love our families, and they are present with us. They desire to change what is ordinary into the extraordinary. The Lord can take our simple and everyday tasks and make them holy. Like the
0: servants at the wedding at Cana, we need to notice when we run out of wine, when we run out of joy, when we run out of love. It is then that we turn to our lady and ask for her help. She can bring Christ into our lives, our ordinary water, and transform it into wine.
1: And when we invite Christ into our lives to transform us, he creates the best wine of all. For more advice, ideas, and encouragement, visit us at messyfamilyproject.org.
0: It is called communion on this Wednesday afternoon. Glad to have you with us. Here's our phone number: eight three three. Two eight eight EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, uh, perhaps you've been thinking about calling, but you've never called because you're thinking, eh, "I can't get through." The phone lines are. Guess what? We've got a line for you right now. 833-288-3986 Call to communion here on EWTN. John says, "How can a Catholic have any peace with God and/or assurance of salvation?" First John five thirteen. When one can lose their salvation after confession and before they put their head on the pillow that very evening. Okay,
2: good. Good question. Here's the answer. Okay. So, um, I I have complete trust in my wife's fidelity. Now you could say, well, maybe you're wrong, Anders. Maybe your wife's not all that great a person. But for the sake of argument, for the sake of argument, just accept that my wife's fidelity is unquestionable she will always be there for me she will never leave me she'll never cheat on me till death do us part she's totally going to be there for me so except for the sake of my illustration that that is the case and I could know that with infallible certainty I could know of my wife's fidelity and her love and her generosity and forgiveness towards me period well I can completely rely on that and I can also open the door and walk out right could. I can walk out the door. Yeah. I could I could leave my wife and I could go off to Vegas. That'd be a dumb thing to do. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and, and like, you say, well, Andrews, do you know for sure you're not going to Vegas next week? My answer would be, pretty darn sure. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't really know the future. And I never know what kind of pressures I might be subject to. I think it's very unlikely that I'm going to skip out for Vegas next week. But But in this analogy... My 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 ability to have certainty that I'm going to be stably and happily married in 20 years hangs on only one person, me. Hangs on my cooperation, my willingness to sit there and live in communion with this wonderful woman, knowing that at any minute I could walk out the door and go away. But I'm not gonna. That's a, that's what a Catholic's relationship with God is like. God is the the uh, he is the bridegroom, who is infallibly. Unalterably loyal and faithful to us, making Himself available to us in the most intimate way possible, and promising us eternity in consequence. And all we have to do is persevere to the end, knowing that if even if we do walk out the door, He'll always take us back. You just don't die outside the door. (laughs) And so again, do I have assurance? You, you betcha, I've got assurance. The one thing I don't have assurance of is the infallibility of my own will. But Uh if I walk out the door, it's on me. And if I do, I can turn around and come right back again. Yes. So Jesus says, whoever perseveres to the end will be saved. So I'm look, you know, where am I standing today? I'm I'm in the church. I'm in communion. I went to Mass this morning. I received my Lord in the Eucharist. These are all objective, tangible, powerful signs of my communion with Christ. I'm not planning on walking out the door. God grant that I keep on not planning to walk out the door.
0: Yes, indeed. Thank you so much for your text, John. We do appreciate that. Call to communion here on EWTN. We go now to Mike in Albany, New York, listening on WOPG, 1460 AM. Hey, Mike, what's on your mind today? Hey, guys. uh, Dr. Anders, I was just uh, curious with Christ's statement that the gates of hell shall not prevail. um,
2: it, It seems to be that would be the case, that... If Francis is a valid pope, then the gates of hell have prevailed. So it would seem to me
0: that Francis, you know, through Christ's promise, a pope cannot teach heresy unless, by virtue of the fact that, as Saint Robert Bellarmine said, that you know, if a, if a manifest heretic, if, if a if a pope does something in such a fashion, he, he ceases to be pope.
2: Okay. Thanks. Appreciate the question. So let me let me kind of walk a fine line here Uh, i don't think it is right or proper appropriate or prudent in my position uh, as a catholic radio host to comment on the prudence or imprudence of of any pope or bishop's pastoral mission or activity right that's 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 somebody else's job so i'm going to just prescind from the question of Controversy surrounding Pope Francis's pontificate, policies that he's taken, positions he's taken—Are they good? Are they bad? I, I just don't even want to go there, all right Because that's not—I'm not interested in that right now. But I will raise the question of—not this or that pope or this or that bishop, but of the office in general and how we are to understand it and relate to it as Catholics. And what does the Church actually teach, and how should we think about it? And and when we look back in history, uh, in over the course of papal history. There have been popes in history who were ambiguous at best, and perhaps material heretics. And the the closest case would be to, to a pope who was actually a material heretic would be John the Twenty Second, He's a, a a 14th century pope in Avignon who who held erroneous uh, doctrinal positions on the beatific vision after death, and he was just he was dead wrong. And he later recanted his position, and he got on board with orthodoxy, and he was corrected by the theologians in Paris, and opposed by most of the episcopate. And I mean, it was just kind of a big mess. And he was wrong. He was teaching the stuff publicly. And he was wrong. Uh, but he, before he died, he kind of came around, and said, "Hey guys, I was wrong. It was private theological opinion, wasn't a dogma. Didn't try to dogmatize. You know, yada yada. It's all good." Um, and there've been other popes. Uh, you know, Pope Honorius. Um, not Honorius. My mind's gone blank. Um anyway, was it Honorius, the Monothelite Pope?
0: That sounds right. Um
2: yeah, Monothelite Pope, uh Pope Liberius, who was at best kind of a temporizer during the Arian controversy, Pope uh, Vigilius, who split the difference between the between um the Monophysites and the uh, uh, uh and the orthodox on the nature of Christ. Um so I mean like there've been other instances in 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 papal lots of instances I should say in papal history of popes who took kind of dodgy positions. And at the First Vatican Council, when they formulated the dogma of papal infallibility, it's not like they didn't know about these guys. They knew about them, and they took them explicitly into consideration when they formulated the dogma to to accommodate these kinds of outlier conditions, right? Um, and and the, the the pope's infallibility is limited to a very narrow sphere of when he formally declares something to be divinely revealed and establish it as dogma that rarely happens in papal history uh, and when it when it does it's it, it stands out it's fairly obvious right and uh, and there's some pretty strict conditions for qualifying it outside of that there's no guarantee of papal infallibility and there's certainly there's never a guarantee of papal prudence so even a even a teaching that's that's proposed as infallible can be done badly or at the wrong time or in the wrong manner,
0: Mm
2: -hmm. right? Newman, uh, who Pope Francis just made a saint, viewed the First Vatican Council as theologically correct, but terribly imprudent. He was known as an inopportunist, Newman was. He thought, shouldn't have held the council, shouldn't have defined the dogma, bad idea will lead to unpleasant consequences, but of course i believe it right because not every anybody who's married knows not everything that's true needs to be spoken aloud right <laughs> something can be true and imprudently stated and we're not we're not obligated to even think that a true papal pronouncement was prudently stated or stated well and when it comes to things like pastoral policy well i mean we're not even we're not even we're not even bound to regard those as in any way, like, guaranteed as prudential decisions, right? We have to, we offer the Pope and the bishops a religious submission of mind and will, right? Which means that, look, when I go into the parish, and I, you know, every Catholic experiences this every week, priest gets up preaches a homily. He read the same readings that I read. And I'm thinking... Really, <laughs> really? <laughs> that's what you got out of today's readings, you know. That and we we armchair we armchair preach, right? Mm-hmm. We think that's man. That was just not 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 what we needed to hear today, right? That's a common experience. That's a common experience. Even more so when you think, well, why didn't you allow this ministry in the parish, and why did we have to have that, and do we really need another one of those? And 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 yet and yet I acknowledge religious submission of mind mm-hmm. and will that he is the executive authority of the parish, or of the diocese, or of the universal church. And the buck stops with him in terms of making these policy decisions about where we're going to go and where we're not going to go. he has that authority. So it's not my place to stand up and give out like the official Catholic position on Mm -hmm. some policy issue or some political event or some cultural phenomenon. The Pope has that right. The bishops have that right. I don't have that right okay i don't want that right um and uh, and i acknowledge that they stand in that place but that doesn't mean that they are always right when they make these judgments and i'm not obligated by the virtue of faith to hold that they do and and in my private opinions i may think that you know that some prelate in the catholic church who has authority or jurisdiction over me has made a bad move and you know i go back to the saints I read their lives, you know, that's one of the reasons that I'm Catholic, reading the lives of the saints. I don't remember any saint who made the prudence of papal or Episcopal policy a key point in his own spirituality, or her own spirituality. You know, I mean, some Mm -hmm. of the greatest saints lived at times of the greatest Episcopal foolishness. And... St. Francis of Assisi is kind of my go-to guy for this. I mean, can you imagine St. Francis wringing his hands and saying, oh no, you know, the Bishop of Umbria did this, that, or the other bad thing. <laughs> it just, it's unthinkable. Yeah. If he thought some stupid thing had happened at the Episcopal level, what he, would have, he probably would have spent another 72 hours in Eucharistic adoration. You know, or talking to donkeys or something, you know, like he would be wont to do. He would go do some incredible act of penance. He was looking at the big picture. He was looking at the big picture. Exactly. And it just wouldn't have bothered him in the way in which it bothers He sure. He wouldn't be happy for the bishop's soul. No. Yeah. But it wouldn't have bothered his faith in the slightest. And it doesn't bother mine in the slightest. It's you know, sometimes there's an occasion the possibility of scandal. Mm-hmm. You worry about that, because Christ tells us not to scandalize little people. Um, But in terms of the solidity of my own faith, I mean, I'm totally unmoved. I know who saves me. It's Jesus Christ and the sacraments who saves me. And that's not changing at all. It's not going anywhere. And I still have to be humble and faithful and loving and answer to the Lord. And the Pope
0: and the bishops, they will answer for their sins, and I'll answer for mine. And Jesus will sort it all out in the end. Mike, thank you so much for your call. It is called a Communion here on EWTN, one of the 11 shows that we podcast every weekday, over 60 per week Every week, I mean, we are podcast maniacs around here. We love to podcast because we know that audio on demand is something that really, really resonates with people. This way, we know that you'll never miss your favorite EWTN program. And by the way, it is absolutely free. You can listen. You can download. You can subscribe to a podcast just like you would subscribe to a magazine. Go to EWTN.com slash radio slash podcasts, and you can get started right away. Back to the phone's. Right now, here is Kevin in Tacoma, Washington, listening on our great partner there, Sacred Heart Radio. Kevin, what's on your mind today?
2: Hi. um, I was just wondering, is the canonization of a saint infallible? And from what I understand, there has been, uh, this could be wrong, but there has been saints that have been removed or
0: a made-up person. How could this be?
2: Yeah, thanks. Okay, so canonizations now are considered to be under the, the infallibility of those pronouncements is a secondary object of infallibility, because it pertains to the life of the church's prayer, which is essential to to our sanctity. Um, when it comes to saints from history, who those who are regarded as saints, many of these are local traditions, pious practices handed down without any kind of formal pronouncement from the church. You know, so there's a tradition of veneration that that emerged in you know some ancient period of the church. Uh, but, uh, but never formally pronounced, um, as, uh, in, in a, in a way that would be guaranteed by the charism of infallibility.
0: And, um, so there you go. Okay. Kevin, thanks for your call. Here is a anonymous text that just came in. Why do Catholics get all bent out of shape over, about people bowing down to the Pachamama statue, yet they have no problem with Catholics bowing down to statues of Mary and the saints? Aren't they both idolatrous?
2: Okay, so again, um, rather than, than dive explicitly into like current political events and papal policy and synods and all that, I'm yes. just gonna kind of put that on the shelf. Um, let me distinguish idolatry from the veneration of saints. Okay. Okay. Um, th- the, the major difference between idolatry and the veneration of saints is that the, kind of the, the principal form of worship is the offering of sacrifice and, and we don't ever sacrifice to the saints. We don't ever offer sacrifices to the saints. The saints are, are cooperators with us in making the offering of Christ's body and blood to God the Father in operation for the sins of the world. So they are supplicants along with us mm-hmm. in this act. And our own veneration of saints is the form of the veneration of saints explicitly acknowledges that. We ask God that we might be saved through the merits and prayers of this or that holy person. See, we're recognizing that they are they are like us, they're cooperating with grace in our journey to God, and we want to be just kind of brought alongside in their wake, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Okay. But it it's oriented godward. Um in pagan idolatry, people are offering sacrifices to pagan gods. And that's kind of the form of idolatry that Paul has principally in mind in First Corinthians, where he says we shouldn't be partners with the table of the Lord and the table of demons, right? Can't that's that's the context in which you would avoid meat sacrifice to idols okay. when that eating is partaking actually in the altar of sacrifice and and so when it comes to you know, physical acts of 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 reverence, they're somewhat context dependent so for example, you know when I was a kid, I used to take karate in the Japanese dojo and it's a cultural form in Japan that you that you bow to each other right yep, yep. and and it's kind of like shaking hands or saluting the flag and it doesn't have the connotation of sacrificial worship attached to it that it would say in Dagon's temple in in the the you know in the Philistine command post when you're bowing down in front of the statue of Dagon uh you know it's associated to the cult of Dagon and all that's involved with that right um and uh but you know the mere fact of bending at the waist um I mean, I do that when I have back pain.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Remshot, Thank you very much for that. It is called a communion here on EWTN. Andrea, listening in Cedar Rapids, Iowa on KMMK 88.7 FM. Andrea, what's on your mind today?
4: Well, hi. Um, I have a question about something I heard from another commentator, and um, they were discussing the Eucharist, and he said that, um When the uh, um, Eucharist dissolves, then the presence leaves, and I'm, I'm a convert, and that just made me sad when I heard that. why? Um, and then
2: why did that make you sad?
4: Well, because I thought it stayed with me. The presence of God would stay with
2: me. Oh, okay, um, well, hold, hold it right there for just a second, all right? We need to distinguish two things. The the, the the Eucharist is, properly speaking, the sacrament of Christ's body and blood. Christ's body and blood. Now, let's, let's do a little theology, a little Christology, some theology about Christ's person. Jesus is a single person who has two natures, divine nature and human nature. Body and blood are characteristic of Christ's human nature. Divinity does not have body and blood, except except in the person of Jesus. So, God the Father does not have body and blood. God the Holy Spirit does not have body and blood. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, in eternity, has no body and blood, except through the assumption of the human nature of the person Jesus. The sacrament brings to us, properly speaking, the real presence of Christ's body and blood. That's the language that Jesus uses at the institution. He says, this is my body, this is the chalice of the new covenant in my blood. Now, when Jesus walked in the Holy Land 2,000 years ago, and you, if you walked up to him, and you put your hand out and touched him, like the woman with the issue of blood, you laid hands on his physical presence, you would touch his body and blood. But body and blood joined in his person to divinity. So along with body and blood, you also were touching God. You are touching, you're touching God's arm in the physical arm of Christ. But divinity as such does not have flesh. Only in the assumption of the nature of Christ does divinity have flesh. And that's what you're touching. You're touching Jesus' physical arm. In the Eucharist now, that very same Jesus who walked in Palestine is present to us in the Eucharist. Principally, through the transubstantiation of the elements, we are given Christ's body and blood, just as the disciples would have had Christ's body and blood with them. Mm-hmm. But like them, when they touch Jesus' human arm, they also had the divinity along for the show. When we touch the body and blood of Christ in the sacrament... We also have the divinity that is hypostatically, that's a fancy word for meaning in the person, united to that body and blood. Now, when the Eucharist dissolves and the accidents of bread and wine vanish and there's no more appearance of bread and wine there, we no longer have a sacrament of Christ's body and blood. And so in that mode, he's not there. That does not mean that God is not with you intimately. Because God's divinity is omnipresent, ubiquitous, and immense. Meaning that every particle of creation has the entirety of God present to it by way of his immensity, maintaining it in being. Through sanctifying grace, which is a participation in the divine nature that we receive when we become believers and and through baptism, we, we participate in the divine nature in a very intimate way that we can only lose through mortal sin. When we love God and keep his commands, Jesus says, he and the Father will come to us and make our dwelling within us. This is the promise of the indwelling trinity. Again, we do not lose that except through mortal sin. And... So, there are modes of the divine presence that we never lose. We never lose God by way of his omniscience. We never lose God's presence by way of his immensity. We never lose God's presence by way of sanctifying grace in the indwelling Trinity, unless we sin mortally. And uh, we, we have the sacramental mode, through transubstantiation, not only of the divinity, but of Christ's body and blood. And that mode is renewed upon altars throughout the the world every day at every moment to remain for us as a perpetual memorial of the death and resurrection of Jesus and one to which Catholics can continually return to nourish themselves on that body and blood. So do not despair. Do not despair. The fact that there is a unique mode of presence in the Eucharist does not mean that you do not have God with you in other ways at all times, and you can always go back to that Eucharistic mode every single day.
0: Andrea, thank you so much for your call. Here is Ron, now in Syracuse, New York, listening on Sirius XM 130. Ron, what's on your mind today?
2: Hey, Dr. Anders. Uh, You know, I hear many folks, uh, Christians that I respect, talk about when you die, you know, good Christians go to heaven and so forth. I was always under the impression that when we die, we do not go to heaven
3: until final judgment. Can can you help me understand that one a little bit better?
2: Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So, there is a dogma of the church on this question. and. The the, you, the fact that you raise it shows that sometimes it's a little obscure to see in the tradition or sacred scripture. And and Catholics themselves were confused about this until the late 14th century when Pope Benedict XII wrote an encyclical and infallibly taught the dogma that the souls of the just enter immediately into the beatific vision. So it's a dogma of the Catholic faith that if you die... Uh, in uh, perfect love of God, you will go immediately to the beatific vision. that's a dogma of the church. Um to understand the why of that, it's a little bit trickier, right? so the the scriptures teach St. Paul, for example, says he would rather he would rather be absent from the body and present with the Lord, right? His own expectation that at his death he would enter into the beatific vision, and he consciously there would be preferable to the life that he lives in the life of the flesh. Um, even though he looked forward later to a resurrection of the dead. So that's one proof text, if you will. We have a picture in sacred scripture of those who are consciously participating in the afterlife. and They're not just sleeping until the resurrection. The souls of the just in Revelation chapter 5 are engaged in worship to God and offering the prayers of the church. Uh, like them, the prophet Jeremiah and the high priest Ananias in second Maccabees chapter 15 likewise present to God interceding on behalf of the church um, uh, Moses and Elijah even though they weren't yet in the beatific vision are clearly conscious participants uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17 so uh, and then we can we can do a little philosophical analysis also and look at the nature of the soul and the fact that it's not uh, even though the soul e- exists in forming a material medium, I mean, our physically bod- physical physical bodies, it's not itself a physical thing because it has it has non non physical properties like intellection, abstraction, consciousness, and the like that are not intrinsically tied
0: or necessarily tied to the existence of matter. Okay, and Ron, thank you so much for your call. We do appreciate hearing from you. Could not get to Christopher's text. He sent us a great text, which we'll hopefully get to on tomorrow's program. So, Christopher, do tune in for that. Dr. David Anders, thank you, sir. Thank you, Tom. We do the program Monday through Friday right here on EWTN Radio at 2 p.m. Eastern with an encore at 11 p.m. Eastern. And, of course, the great best of the week show on Sundays at 2 p.m. Eastern. On behalf of our fantastic team behind the glass, Charles Beery, Ryan Penny, and Jeff Burson, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. You have a wonderful day, and we will see you tomorrow here on EWTN Radio's Call to Communion. God bless. Hey, y'all, this is Father Mitch Patrick. Open Line Wednesday is next on EWTN Radio
1: morning glory it's catholic from coast to coast sometimes we think my spouse can
3: fulfill all of my needs and desires and that's true but only to a limited extent because it has to be rooted in the fact that god is the one that's going to ultimately fulfill all of your hopes desires and needs your spouse can't do that
1: morning glory talking about everything important to today's catholic tomorrow morning seven eastern on ewtn radio ewt Live truth. Live Catholic.
4: Blessed Sacrament CYO presents their sixth annual arts and crafts show on Saturday, November 16th from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. at the Blessed Sacrament Gym and Parish Hall. Admission is free and there is something for everyone. There will be over 60 vendors from woodworking to religious items and much more. And there will be a door prize drawing every hour. That's Blessed Sacrament CYO Arts and Craft Show, Saturday, November 16th.
0: KJMA 89.7 FM would like to thank Dr. Stephen Planchet and the Atascosa Vision Source in Pleasanton, Texas for their support in keeping our airwaves Catholic. Their vision is to provide an eye care experience that is like no other. Service to you is their priority. Atascosa Vision Source is located at 1514 West Oak Lawn in Pleasanton and can be reached at 830-569-8771 or visionsource-atascosa.com.
1: It started like it does for many people. question my faith and question authority. And I feel that the reason why I left was the the draw of the world. The world was pulling me away. Some people would say, you know, Satan would you know Satan was working on me. He did not want me in church. He wanted me to be desperate. He wanted me to have the thoughts of suicide. I started to realize that a lot of the things that I experienced in my life, were a result of my rebellion against God and against authority. Coming back to the church is the first step in healing from all of the hurts of the world. I went from being desperate and in despair to finding hope and encouragement for for the future. I'm on God's team. I I know who I belong to and I know where I'm going and there's nothing that can separate me from God's love.
2: Take another look at the Catholic Church. Visit CatholicsComeHome.org today.
3: Hi, my name is Father Christopher Christensen. I'm at the Cathedral of St. Thomas More in Arlington. Did you know that Americans spent more than $3.65 trillion on health care? That's more than the GDP of countries like Brazil, Mexico, Spain, Canada. It's a lot of money. You know, with all of this emphasis on living well, long life again health care and fitness like, no wonder we lose sight of not this life but the next life that becomes a little bit of a problem we heard in today's gospel that god is the god of the living not the God of the dead. And so it's important for us to recognize our true purpose. It's important for us, to, for us to recognize like what we're here for, what we're meant for and where we are going. And also to remember that we're not just physical beings. We are in fact spiritual beings as well. We have a soul. So the soul we say is the life principle of the body. It's the animating principle of the body. And it's so important that you know what happens when the soul and the body separate We call that death. If I overemphasize the fact that I'm physical, that I'm a body, then what happens? I become excessively pragmatic and all morals and ethics go out the window so that I can achieve my physical, my human end in this life. If I overemphasize the spiritual, well, what happens there is I have a kind of a spiritualism, which is a hatred in the end for the body. I have to escape the body, get out of the body. And I even have to remake who I am in my own body because the body isn't good enough. So your challenge this week is to bring those two together. How do you use your body for a spiritual purpose? I want you you to do do that this week by fasting, whether it's skipping a meal, uh, not eating between meals, or maybe just eating a little less at a meal. And I want you to do all of that for the sake of the Lord. Two Minutes to Virtue is a production of the Catholic Diocese of Arlington, Virginia. For more information, visit their website at arlingtondiocese.org.
0: Thanks for listening to KJMA 89.7 Floorsville, San Antonio on the Guadalupe Radio Network in South Texas. Catholic Radio for your soul. Catholic Radio for your soul. Also streaming on grnonline.com and on your
4: smartphone.